The House comes to oral questions. Question number one, in the name of Rachel Brooking. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister for the Environment. What progress has the government made on reforming the resource management system? Mr. Speaker. Uh, the Honourable David Parker. Uh, Mr Speaker, today the government introduced the Natural and Built Environment and the Spatial Planning Bills that will repeal the Resource Management Act, addressing the long-standing problems with the current system while saving Kiwis billions of dollars. Successive governments have failed to deliver comprehensive resource management reform. More than 20 major amendments and thousands of minor ones since the RMA was introduced have increased complexity. Reform is overdue. Everyone is frustrated. Environmentalists, developers, councils, farmers, home builders, and there is cross-party support for the need to repeal and replace the RMA. How will resource management be streamlined by repeal and replacement of the RMA? Uh, Mr Speaker, more than 100 RMA plans will reduce to 15 regional level plans across the country. The time taken to prepare them will reduce from about 10 years under the current system to a maximum of four years. Off-the-shelf standards for housing and infrastructure projects will remove the need for bespoke specification for each project, making future infrastructure and housing easier and cheaper to consent. Developers, infrastructure providers and businesses will see the largest cost savings as consent volumes and cost decrease, saving hundreds of millions of dollars a year. How much is the repeal and replacement of the RMA estimated to reduce costs by? Unduly restrictive planning restraints have contributed to New Zealand's urban land and housing prices being amongst the least affordable in the OECD. The new resource management system will deliver economic and environmental benefits. For every dollar spent in the new system, it's expected that there will be benefits of between $2.58 and $4.90. On a conservative estimate, cost to users will fall by 19% or $149 million per annum, equal to more than $10 billion cost savings over a year, plus savings in housing, plus better environmental outcomes. How will the replacement for the RMA better protect the environment? The most significant change to environmental protection will be a shift from an effects-based approach to one that is based on outcomes. Put simply, an effects-based approach has allowed many small adverse effects to accumulate into significant environmental degradation, most notably with water quality and the loss of biodiversity and uh, topsoil. The MBA will focus on outcomes, setting limits to maintain current environmental levels and targets where degradation needs to be restored. Um, supplementary, the Honourable Jamie Sage. Does he believe that urban trees that provide habitats for wildlife, improve air quality, provide shade and reduce the urban heat island effect are essential to the livability of our cities? And if so, why are there no strong controls in the Natural Built Environments Bill to protect urban trees? Uh, in respect of the first part of the question, yes, uh, there are improvements in the bill, but we're not going back to the status quo ante where you had to get a resource consent to prune a tree. Um, supplementary, Simon Cool. Can the Minister explain succinctly what the pivotal Section 3B recognise and uphold Te Oranga or Te Taio will mean for people trying to build homes? Uh, it won't really directly affect that. Um, Rachel Brooking. Thank you. What are the next steps for repealing and replacing the RMA? Uh, next week, the two bills will have their first readings and be sent to the Environment Committee for a full six-month consideration. This will be a further opportunity for the public and committee members to scrutinise the bills in detail, following on from consideration of exposure draft of the NBA earlier this term. 
Uh, it adds to the Randerson panel's outreach, multiple earlier reports from the Productivity Commission, the Waitangi Tribunal, LGNZ, EDS, the EMA, Infrastructure New Zealand and the Property Council. Following the select committee process, it is the government's intention to pass the bills into law by the end of this parliamentary return, uh, term and finally repeal and replace the RNA. Yeah. Well well uh, question number two, Christopher Luxon. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Acting Prime Minister and reads, does he stand by all of his government's statements and actions? Uh, the Honourable Grant Robertson. Mr Speaker, yes, particularly the introduction of the spatial planning and natural and built environment bills today. Mr Speaker, after decades of frustration from developers and councillors, uh, farmers, home builders, environmentalists, the government is now proposing a new system that is cheaper, faster and better. As the Minister has just indicated, resource consents have become far more costly over recent years and time taken for them and infrastructure projects has been completely unacceptable. In contrast, the new resource management system that we will deliver will cut costs and deliver economic and environmental benefits. It will reduce the number of plans from more than 100 to just 15 regional level plans across the country, half the time taken to prepare and generate improved environmental standards and, as the Minister have said, between $2.58 and $4.94, every dollar spent will come through in benefits. Mr Speaker, this is one of the most important changes that the Government can make to enable much-needed development and to protect and restore the environment for the well-being of current and future generations. I'm proud that our Government has introduced this legislation. How can the Government spend an extra $5 billion a year in education? hire over 1,400 more ministry bureaucrats, but to deliver declining attendance and falling achievement. Mr Speaker, as has been covered many times over uh, the course of the last couple of weeks in this House, uh, the, the COVID-19 pandemic has had a significant impact on the issues that the member raises. What I can say is that on this side of the House, we value teachers, the people in classrooms that we have helped build over the last few years. The previous national government didn't hire enough teachers, didn't pay teachers well enough and didn't build classrooms. We've got on with doing it. Um, Christopher Luxon. Does he accept that there is a relationship between 100,000 students being chronically absent from school and the 500% increase in RAM raids since 2018? Mr Speaker, uh, there are many reasons behind the number of ram raids that we have seen uh, in New Zealand and the government is committed to addressing those. But having an education system that is properly funded, that makes sure that we have quality teachers in classrooms and we have classrooms that are warm and dry and safe is something this government takes seriously, it's something that that member's party failed to do over nine years. Uh, the Honourable Chris Hopkins. Can the Acting Prime Minister confirm that the people just referred to as bureaucrats include speech and language therapists, occupational therapists, educational psychologists and a range of other specialists who work directly with our most um, vulnerable order. children? questions are heard in silence. Uh, Mr Speaker, I got the gist of that and indeed the Minister is correct. The National Party continue to insist that some of the people who work with the learners in our classroom who need the most assistance, who make sure that everyone gets to participate, are somehow or other bureaucrats. That says, Mr Speaker, that says, Mr Speaker, far more about the National Party than it does about those people. What impact does he think ads on the back of buses telling kids, quote, every school day is a big day, quote, will have on the young people driving cars through shop windows every other night. Mr Speaker, Mr Speaker, what the member fails utterly to understand is that the issues that our education system is facing today do not just exist inside the school gate. We know that, Mr Speaker. Calm down, calm down. We know that, Mr Speaker, and we've acted on that by providing free school lunches, by making sure that period products are provided in our schools, by making sure that we've lifted support for low and middle income people. All of that, all of that opposed by the National Party. Does he agree with official advice that putting nurses on the residence fast track would lead to, quote, rapid growth in nurses coming here, and if so, why on earth is the government still refusing to do this 
when hundreds of people are waiting more than 24 hours in emergency departments. Mr Speaker, I'm proud of the fact on this side of the House we've increased the nursing workforce significantly by about 20 per cent since we've been offered. We've increased the pay for nurses by more than 20 per cent since we've been in office. Mr Speaker, we are the people who've invested in making sure there are more nurses in our health system. That's not what the member's done. And I'd invite the member to answer the question, how will he pay for that if he's giving tax cuts to the wealthiest New Zealanders? Does he accept that Kiwis waiting hours for treatment just want a qualified nurse, not matter where they are born? And by refusing to abandon its anti-migrant policy, this government is prioritising ideology over access to health care. Mr Speaker, there's only one person in this House prioritising ideology over action, and that's that member over there who's prioritising tax cuts for the wealthiest New Zealanders when we need to invest in our public services. Can he explain how, despite spending a billion dollars more each and every single week and hiring an extra 14,000 more bureaucrats, this government is still failing to deliver in education, health, housing and crime. Mr Speaker, Mr. Speaker, over the course of the last two and a half years, New Zealanders have had it tough. What they've had is a government that has delivered 3.3% unemployment, one of the lowest levels of debt in the world, growth of over 4.8% since before COVID began. What New Zealanders know, that this has been a challenging time for everyone, but they have a government that's got their back, not a government that's got the back of the wealthiest New Zealanders. Um, David Seymour, supplementary. Does the acting Prime Minister agree with the Education Review Office, who said in their recent report on school attendance, it's important to, quote, understand the attendance of every learner in a school and act early when concerned, end quote. And if so, does he think it's acceptable that the Ministry of Education released its Term 2 attendance data on the 11th of November, four months after Term 2 finished? Uh, Mr Speaker, in answer to the first part of the question, yes, and schools every day are working to make sure that their pupils are attending. Supplementary. Supplementary. Um, the Honourable Michael Wood. Uh, does he think that the government's reopening of the parent visa category, which uh, went for its first draw today, is an example of anti-migrant policy, or does he think it was more of an anti-migrant policy for it to be closed in 2016? Oh. Mr Speaker, indeed. I think today is an important day for many migrant families to see the parent category reopen. Mr Speaker, I think actually... Mr Speaker, I think actually all members of this House would want a government that respects those who want to come to New Zealand and works with them. We know that our migrants and our refugee communities contribute enormously. I wouldn't like to see them used as a political football that way. Supplementary. Uh, David Seymour. Why was the data for students' school attendance in Term 2 of this year put up quietly on a government website on a Friday afternoon? Was it because over 60% of Kiwi kids are no longer regularly attending school? Mr Speaker, no, it's because that's how it's been done every single year, including when the member was in government. Supplementary. Does he believe that this government has a public education system? And can it really say that with its hand on its heart? when the majority of students are not regularly attending school anymore? Mr Speaker, we absolutely do have a public education system, but I tell you what, if he's in government, we won't. Uh, the Honourable Chris Hipkins. Can the Prime Minister confirm, the acting Prime Minister confirm that those who were claiming, repeatedly claiming, that the majority of students aren't attending regularly are counting those who have been isolating at home because they have COVID-19 in their statistics? Oh. Speaker, I absolutely can confirm that. In fact, the people who had... People who had to isolate in line with public health protocols are exactly the kind of people being included by the member in his statistics. Uh, David Seymour. Is the acting Prime Minister seriously saying that we don't have a serious problem with school attendance in this country because there's nothing to see here? They were just isolating because of COVID-19. Mr. Mr Speaker, what I'm saying is, is that it's important in this House to get the facts right. The facts as articulated by the Education Minister are what they are. Every single member of this House would want to make sure that all children are attending school on a regular basis. We have had an issue with that 
in New Zealand since the mid-2010s. We are working on making sure we rectify that. True. Why did the entire Education Review Office report not think of the reason the Acting Prime Minister just gave at all? Mr Speaker, the Education Review Office report covered a much longer period, a period during which the National Party and the ACT Party were in office when these issues first arose. Read it. Uh, question number three in the name of Dr em Emily Henderson. My question is to the Minister of Housing. What action is the government taking to enable better housing outcomes through reform of the resource management system? Uh, the Honourable Dr Megan Woods. We are simplifying the resource management system to make it faster, cheaper and better to build the housing that we need. The planned development times will be shorter, taking around four years to get out of the gate rather than up to ten years under the current system. Independent hearings panels will improve plan quality and enable appeal rights to be restricted for matters in line with their recommendations, reducing delay, cost and relitigation. By focusing on strategic planning, more activities will be permitted and fewer consents needed in the new system, saving time and costs for users that we expect to be passed on to home buyers. Why are these changes to the planning system needed? Mr Speaker, the RMA has not adequately protected the natural environment nor enabled development where needed. Currently, the system doesn't provide enough certainty for housing developers. It costs too much, driving up costs for housing developments and create plans that have been too restrictive to enable the housing we need. Decades of this has contributed to New Zealand's housing being among the least affordable in the OECD. What are the expected benefits from increased housing affordability then? Estimates indicate the new system will provide annual average benefits to people from increased housing affordability of between 146 million and 834.3 million. Economic modelling estimates is delivered by the more responsive and affordable housing supply that is enabled by these changes. Costs to users of the RM sisters, such as developers, will also decrease by up to 19% or around $149 million per year. Those reduced planning um, component costs are expected to flow through to the prices people pay for their homes. How will the fast-track consenting process support additional housing supply? Housing developments that address the demand or need for housing in a region, including affordable housing, will still be eligible to apply for a fast-track consenting system based on the one we created as part of the COVID response. Since 2020, 56 fast-track projects have been approved for a total of 4,142 new homes. Many of these projects are delivering affordable housing. Will this then integrate medium density residential standards and the NPS on urban development? Mr Speaker, yes, the medium density residential standards in particular are key to enabling the more affordable, higher density housing that we need in our major urban centres. These, these standards were a bipartisan effort between the Labour and national parties and supported by the Green Party and Te Pāti Māori. They will be integrated into the new system through the national planning framework. Without them, the development capacity of our cities would not be able to deliver the housing supply that we so badly need. What is an example of how the system will make it easier to develop affordable housing? Mr Speaker, to give an illustrative example, a developer or housing provider working across the Wellington region might need to be aware of eight different council plans under the RMA system, all with slightly different rules, consenting offices and practices. In the new system now, there are only two, two plans to consider. This removes complexity and ambiguity for a developer, giving them more confidence that they, they can go on ahead with delivering. Uh, question number four, the Ask Honourable Julianne Genta. Tēnā uh, To the Minister of Finance, does he stand by his statement, quote, our job is to make sure that we have a fair and progressive tax system? Uh, the Honourable Grant Robertson. Yes, I do. Supplementary. 
Does he agree with the recommendation of the generating scarcity report that was released yesterday that an excess profits tax should be levied on the four largest energy companies? Uh, Mr Speaker, um, having worked through that report, uh, at this point, no, I wouldn't accept that uh, recommendation. The report focuses particularly on the lack of, uh, well, the perceived, rather, lack of investment in renewable energy generation. On that score, I think we are seeing progress in that area. When it comes to the issue around excess profits or windfall taxes, as they're sometimes called, we need to look at a specific event if that is going to occur, and I don't believe that's uh, justified in this case. Does he think it is fair that rising electricity prices are contributing to the cost of living crisis New Zealanders are struggling with, while private shareholders are reaping the benefits with high dividends. Yeah, Mr Speaker, in terms of electricity prices, I actually think that what the evidence shows is that they've remained relatively flat uh, in real terms. We do keep a very close eye on electricity prices. My take on reading the report is actually it is much more focused on whether or not those companies have been investing sufficiently in future renewable energy generation. And as I say, I don't believe that case has been fully made. Does he agree with economist Joseph Stiglitz on windfall taxes that, quote, it makes a great deal of sense at this current juncture. It's not as if the energy companies did anything to deserve it. Oh, Mr Speaker, I, I'm not sure whether Mr Stiglitz was speaking specifically In about Australia. New Zealand energy oh, companies per Australia. se. Um, there are different experiences all around the world. Clearly what we've seen in places like the United Kingdom is very significant price increases associated with high energy profits, and I, I presume Mr Stiglitz may have been referring to that. Does he consider that the profits of the four largest energy gen tailors in New Zealand are totally justified by their own investments and innovation? Well, Mr Speaker, uh, the question of around profits and the use of dividends and so on within our major energy companies are the responsibility of the boards of those energy companies. Is he concerned that without a windfall tax, supermarkets, banks and energy companies will continue to make excessive profits while household costs are increasing? Well, Mr Speaker, our view is that there are many things that we can do to deal with the situations where we believe that there may be excessive profits. For example, in the supermarket sector, that's why we've launched a programme of reform uh, to be able to, to reduce what we do believe there is excessive. We also saw the announcements last week around open banking, another way that we can reduce costs, and also the work that's been done in the energy sector uh, that Minister Woods announced last week as well. So there are many different ways of addressing the issues the member raises. Uh, question number five, Nicola Willis. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Finance and asks, does he stand by his statement last week in relation to management of government finances that tough choices will be required? If so, what tough choices is he considering, if any? Uh, um, I stand by my full statement that, quote, we are, however, not immune to what happens overseas, which will put pressure on the government's books. We will continue to responsibly manage our finances, and that means tough choices will be required as we tread a pathway back to surplus. To answer the second part of the member's question, the tough choices are those required to balance properly funding the services that matter most to New Zealanders, like health and education and housing, while returning to surplus, whilst also keeping debt under control. Is it correct that inflation, while making things much more expensive for New Zealanders, is also helping fuel a record government tax take? And will he consider adjusting tax brackets to adjust for this perverse result? Uh, Mr Speaker, it is true that inflation has some contribution to that. What also has a contribution to that is a record number of New Zealanders in work so that they are also contributing to the tax base. We've also seen company profits at a very, very high level. And we've also seen our economy cope well with COVID and therefore our revenue through things like GST have also, also been up. What does he consider is more important? Spending hundreds of millions of dollars merging TVNZ and RNZ, or delivering income tax relief for New Zealanders hit by the cost of living oh, crisis? Mr Speaker, the member um, once again fails the walk and chew gum at the same time test of politics, Mr Speaker. It is completely possible for a government to invest in things like making sure that New Zealanders hear themselves and see themselves in a modern media environment, while also upholding um, public services, while also making sure we keep debt under control, while also returning us to surplus. The member's priority might be tax cuts 
hearts for the wealthiest New Zealanders, but it's not ours. Will he adjust to the deepening cost of living crisis by reducing the amount of spending the government does on consultants, which hit a record-breaking $1.2 billion just last year? Uh, Mr Speaker, as I said in answer to the first question, we will continue to balance investing in public services, making sure we bring debt under control and returning ourselves to surplus. Will he respond to a deepening cost of living crisis by calling a halt to the explosive growth in the number of management, communication and administrative roles in the public service. Well, Mr Speaker, we've covered this ground before because that includes the people who communicated with New Zealanders about COVID-19 right through the pandemic, making sure that people knew how to stay safe. The, the, the National Party doesn't think that's important now. That's entirely up to them. What we've also done to support people through a cost of living crisis, as the member said at the start of her question, is actually lift the incomes of low and middle income New Zealanders through increasing benefits in 2020 2021 and 2022, increasing the family tax, tax credit, increasing childcare assistance, making sure that the minimum wage lifts. Every single one of those things where a government can actually take action to support people in a cost of living crisis, national opposed. Why can't he take action to deliver tax relief for working Kiwis? when he can afford 2.1 million for a Freeman's Bay office for 350 Three Waters advisors, 51 million for advice on an Auckland Harbour cycle bridge, and 370 million to merge TVNZ and RNZ. Mr Speaker, I'll give you an idea of just how out of touch the National Party is when it comes to tax cuts. Even Don Brash thinks tax cuts are a bad idea right now. Uh, question number six, Shannon Albert. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Question to the Minister for Infrastructure. What impact will the changes announced for the resource management system have on New Zealand's infrastructure? Mr. Speaker. Uh, the Honourable Grant Mr Speaker, the introduction today of the Natural and Built Environment and Spatial Planning Bills is great news for our infrastructure sector. The new bills will make the resource management process faster, cheaper and better and help boost New Zealand's economic growth. This is especially true for those involved in planning for and building infrastructure. It is a long-held view of those in this sector that the RMA is not working for them or indeed for anyone else. It has been put in the too-hard basket for too long and we want to make sure that New Zealand can grow sustainably through quality infrastructure and these bills will enable that. Supplementary. Why is it important for the infrastructure sector to make these changes? Mr Speaker, the cost and time it takes to get a resource consent for infrastructure projects has grown significantly in recent years, with smaller projects being disproportionately affected. Infrastructure develop developers collectively pay about $1.29 billion a year on consent processes, amounting to an average 5.5 per cent of total project costs. As the Minister for the Environment has said, that puts New Zealand at the extreme end compared with the UK and the EU, where consenting costs were between 0.1% and 5% of total project costs. The Infrastructure Commission to Waihanga estimates costs directly related to resource consents increased 70% from 2014 to 2019, and the time taken to make consent decisions for infrastructure projects has increased by up to 150% over the same period. This, these bills and this legislation will make sure that those times significantly reduce. Supplementary. What specific savings will there be to the infrastructure sector from this piece of legislation? Well, Mr Speaker, less money will be spent on consents and spatial planning will help communities, developers, councils and central government agencies build much-needed infrastructure projects. Developers, infrastructure providers and businesses will see the largest cost savings as consent volumes and costs reduce, delivering savings of hundreds of millions of dollars a year. The new system will create standards associated with housing and infrastructure contained in the National Planning Framework. Mr Brownlee, you didn't even get legislation in in the nine years you were in office, so I don't think you get to ask us questions on that. Mr Speaker, a process similar to the fast track process put in place in response to the economic impact of COVID-19, which reduced consenting time by an average of 15 months per project, will be retained. How can the infrastructure sector support the implementation of the new system? 
Mr Speaker, if we want the most of the benefits the new resource management system can offer, then we do need to make sure it is properly invested in when it comes to its implementation. Budget 2022 saw the government provide $179 million on top of the funding provided in previous budgets to ensure funds are available for developing key areas of reform. Mr Speaker, we have taken the time to get this right, but I am immensely proud the legislation is here. It will be passed before the next election and we will reform the, the resource management system which National utterly failed to do. Right. <laughs> question number seven, Chris Bailey. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Police. Um, order. If you want to take a point of order, take a point of order. But we've got a member asking a question. Chris Bailey. Thank you, Mr Speaker. Minister of Police, how many businesses in New Zealand have had assessments completed under the Retail Crime Prevention Programme, and of those, how many, if any, have had installations of protective equipment completed to date? Uh, the Honourable Chris Hopkins. Mr Speaker, I'm advised that of the 521 stores that have been identified as having been the victims of a RAM raid, police have rung the majority of these stores. 209 of them have, been succe have successfully completed the initial criteria checking. Of these, 132 have had a formal assessment completed by the police. 93 stores have been reviewed by a contractor. 83 stores have installations either booked, underway or fully completed by external suppliers. Uh, Mr Speaker, I'm confident that the police are now completing their part of the process much faster than they were before. Supplementary. Does the Minister believe that the Retail Crime Prevention Programme is fit for purpose? And if so, does he stand by his statement that, quote, evidence shows that once a location has been victimised, it's more likely to be re-offended re against? Mr Speaker. Uh, point of order, David Seymour. Mr Speaker, I'm sorry to cut off my colleague, but I just was thinking hard about the answer to the primary. The, the Minister never actually said how many installations had been completed. He said how many were either booked in process or completed, but he did not give a number on how many of those 83 he named are actually completed. In my mind it's been addressed, but did you... Um, the, the, uh, I'll, I'll give the member an extra question and he can r r either re-ask that part or use it to examine the question further. Uh, yep. Point of order? Yeah, point of order, Chris. This uh, is a primary question on notice, sir, and I think the awarding of one extra supplementary, I'm sure uh, Mr Bailey's happy about that, but it, it is a primary question that asks for quite specific information. Ministers get the question at... You know, around 10.40 or so, they're expected to come to the House with an answer. And it's, it's not a supplementary question, it's a, it's a primary question. And he's answered it before, as my colleague points out. So um, I encourage you to get the Minister to answer the question. I, I did, uh, in my ruling, um, say that in my mind that the, the question had been addressed, which is um, all that the Minister has to do. Um, I, the reason why I gave an extra uh, another question is because it was not as succinct as it might have been. Uh, well, it's, it's a bit moot to, to be uh, questioning the, uh, the the ruling. I'm not going to change it, and I've actually awarded the uh, question, uh, the member an additional question. Well, point of order. Mr. Uh, you, if, it's a, if it's questioning the ruling, it's really a waste of time. Well, I just but, so Chris, <coughs> Chris Bishop, point of M order. Mr. Mr. Speaker, there are a series of speakers' rulings in relation to the answers to primary questions. Mm -hmm. They do not just have to be addressed. The uh, speakers' rulings make it clear that primary questions have to be answered. Both legs of the primary question, and your predecessor in this role was very particular on this point, as as have been speakers Smith and. Um, Carter before you. Speaker, I hope you won't mind me saying it. It would be quite a significant departure to say that a question on notice that specific does not require a specific answer, particularly when the Minister has answered almost identical questions uh, for the City of Hamilton, showing he has even more granular data than he revealed today.
I'm not going to change my ruling. I have ruled. I have given the member an additional question. If he wishes to use it, he can. Chris thank, Bailey. Thank you, Mr Speaker. How many businesses in New Zealand have had assessments completed under the Retail Crime Prevention Programme and have had installations of protective equipment completed to date? Uh, Mr Speaker, 132 have had a formal assessment completed by police. 83 stores have installations booked underway or fully completed. Supplementary. Does the Minister believe that the Retail Crime Prevention Programme is fit for purpose? And if so, does he stand by his statement that evidence shows that once a location has been victimised, it's more likely to be re-offended against? Uh, Mr Speaker, in answer to the second part of the question, yes. In answer to the first part of the question, we keep that under review. Supplementary. What action, if any, will he commit to making today so that businesses, business owners like the Ellerslie jewellery store yesterday don't have to wait to become victims before they are eligible for assistance via the crime prevention programmes? Uh, Mr Speaker, I'm reluctant to get into the details of an individual business when there are people appearing in court about that today. Um, uh, because there is actually more history to that. Um, but I won't get into the detail of that because it wouldn't be appropriate while people are in court on charges relating to that particular incident that the member can, is, uh, is referring to. Supplementary. Can the Minister confirm that the Retail Crime Prevention Programme is specifically for businesses that have been targeted by ram raids and not smash-and-grab offences? And if this is the case, what support is available to victims of smash-and-grab offences? such as the Ellerslie jewellery store yesterday who was hit with a daylight smash-and-grab robbery. Mr Speaker, yes, I can confirm uh, in answer to the first part of the question that the fund was set up to support those businesses that have been the victims of ram raids. Uh, it is the, the issue of smash-and-grabs is something that we'll continue to look at. I wouldn't rule out extending the eligibility for government subsidies uh, along the lines of what the member has been arguing for. Um, Dr James McDowell. Why, after almost six months, has not a single Hamilton business had protection equipment installed under the Retail Crime Prevention Programme, and does he think that's good enough given daily reports of violent robberies and ram raids? Uh, Mr Speaker, there can be a range of reasons why between police uh, doing an assessment and a business having the work completed there can be delays. Uh, in many cases, in most cases in fact, that is, that is not down to the police. Once a business has had its security assessment completed, it is referred then to a contractor who works with the business to get uh, the relevant security installation completed. Uh, in some cases, businesses have to work with the local authority if there's something like bollards, for example, that, it needs, that need resource consent. Uh, in some cases, if it's things like roller doors, uh, where the business has been the victim of a ram raid, uh, an insurance company can also be involved because uh, there's a need to rebuild the front of the shop. Uh, and in some cases, that can add uh, to further delays. But the key thing that police can do is complete the security assessments. Uh, I think police could do more security assessments faster uh, if if they were able to contact more of those businesses. It is proving to be challenging uh, for police to contact some of the businesses that have been victims of those ram raids. Uh, that's, that's very understandable, um, but uh, if the businesses can, uh, who, are, who have been victims can keep uh, in contact with police, uh, then uh, that would make the process faster. A point of order. Point of order, David uh, Mr Speaker, I, I hesitated to, to further interrupt my colleagues, but uh, two supplementaries ago, the Minister said he, he wouldn't uh, address a question because an issue was before the court. And I just urge you to carefully consider uh, whether that sub judice rule that has long existed for good reasons uh, might be abused there. Now, there's certainly some people who might be charged and might be brought before the court in the future in relation to that robbery. But it's a matter of public record that there was a robbery. I was there. It was on the front page of the Herald. And it's a matter of public record that the government has a certain policy on when uh, funds and subsidies are made available. Uh, that was the policy question which, regardless of any outcome of any individuals being tried for that crime, is still something that we have a right to ask the Minister about. And I'd be very worried if Ministers could start saying because there was some vague connection to a court case they didn't have to answer questions in this House. I'll go back and look at the... Um uh, question again um, and come back with a, uh, a ruling on it. 
Um, question number eight, Dr Shane Riti. Thank you, Mr Speaker. To the Minister of Health, how many of the 1,266 internationally qualified nurses that he stated in the House last week had arrived in New Zealand since 1 January 2022 have been employed since 1 January 2022 to work in the health system, and how many nurses have left employment over the same time frame? Mr Speaker. Mr Speaker. Um, the Honourable Andrew Little. Mr Speaker, to the first part of the member's question, as I indicated earlier, I've been advised that... Uh, 1,231 internationally qualified nurses rather than 1,266 have arrived in New Zealand since the 1st of January this year. Those nurses have arrived under one of two visas, the Critical Purpose Work Visa or the Accredited Employer Work Visa. But it should be noted that internationally qualified nurses have arrived in New Zealand since that time under other visas too, principally uh, the Visitors Visa. Part of the criteria to have been granted either of the work visas is to have an offer of employment or be enrolled in a competence assessment programme. That is to say all 1,231 of the nurses who have arrived will have held an offer of employment or are undergoing the New Zealand Nursing Council registration process. To the second part of the member's question, I've been advised that the employment data held by Te Whatu Order Health New Zealand on leavers is not collected in a way that differentiates between internationally qualified nurses and domestically qualified nurses. What I can say is that from the quarter ending 31 March this year to the quarter ending 30 June this year, there was a total of 3,627 uh, nurses who started employment with Te Whatua Order Health New Zealand, and in that same time period there were 2,686 nurse, uh, nurses who voluntarily left employment with Te Whatua Order Health New Zealand. And for completeness, Mr Speaker, I have to say that the number of those who left also includes people who left one district under the old District Health Board regime um, to work in another district because di District Health Boards were different employers and it's not possible to identify and exclude movements between districts. I have to say also, Mr Speaker, this is another reason why we need to upgrade the data system across Te Whatua Order Health New Zealand and investment that this government is making. Point of order. Uh, point of order, Dr Shane Ritter. Uh, Mr Speaker, the primary did not ask how many nurses had been offered employment, but how many had been employed, and the Minister did not answer that. Uh, point of order, Mr Speaker. Uh, um, can you speak oh. to the point of order there? So, yeah, can, uh, the, the answer, Mr Speaker, was um, the 3,627 nurses who started employment. Okay. which looks suspiciously like um, who have been employed since, okay. to me. So it has been answered. Rather odd. Supplementary. Are staffing shortages in our emergency departments contributing to increasing numbers of patients waiting more than 24 hours in ED? And if so, why are nurses not on the fast track to residency? Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, a number of things there. First of all, green, uh, nurses are on the green list of immigration for this country. It has never been easier to come to New Zealand as a nurse, either to come here with an offer of employment or to come here to do a competency assessment programme and to be employed as a nurse, uh, which explains why uh, the number of registrations as recorded by the Nursing Council shows that since November last year, 4,300 internationally qualified nurses have had registration in New Zealand. In relation to the um, the pressures in emergency departments, there are a number of reasons uh, for those pressures. Increased numbers of people turning up needing the services of REDs because of uh, uh, challenges in primary care, principally after hours and urgent care, plus also um, what is happening in age residential care and the fact that it is not as easy to discharge some uh, particularly elderly patients from hospital into those beds as it once was. I'm confident, however, that the leadership and management of Te Whata Order Health New Zealand is doing everything they can to work with all parts of the sector to relieve those pressures. Supplementary. Um, supplementary, Dr Shane Riti. Does he agree with the advice received by the Minister of Immigration suggesting a fast track to residence could perpetuate a growing reliance on migrant health workers? And if so, can he tell New Zealanders what exactly is the problem with migrant nurses filling vacancies in New Zealand hospitals when there are no Kiwi nurses available? Uh, Mr Speaker, there has never been a problem uh, in the New Zealand health system so disagree of employing overseas qualified nurses. We have a lot of them, both in our public 
health system and also in the private health system, principally in aged residential care. Um, and as well as recruiting through immigration to meet the immediate needs and the immediate vacancies in our system, we also have to make sure that we are growing our domestic pipeline of domestically trained nurses, and we are also doing that. How does he explain statements from Rob Campbell, the Chair of Health New Zealand, who said last week it would be helpful for us if nurses were on the day one fast track to residency? Uh, Mr Speaker, uh, Mr Campbell and I work very closely together to make sure uh, that Te Whakawata Health New Zealand, the organisation whose board he chairs, is doing everything it can to uh, fill the nursing vacancies that we have, either through immigration or through supporting other initiatives to grow our domestic pipeline of nurses. Why is it on his watch that not only are increasing numbers of people waiting more than 24 hours in ED, but there is also a 50% increase in people waiting more than 48 hours? And as these wait times have increased, can he name one week recently when an ED disaster has not been in the news? Uh, Mr Speaker, I want to approach that issue very carefully because the member is um, uh, leaping to a range of conclusions that cannot be sustained. What I can say is that on my watch, the number of people turning up to EDs has grown phenomenally, so that for successive months, we've had more than 100,000 people in a month turning up to EDs across New Zealand. And that is the product of a range of factors, but it is mostly the product of years and years of underinvestment in our health system by the members opposite when they were in government. They hate, they hate to be confronted with it. They hate to be confronted with it, but one day some brave member of the National Party is going to rise to say they got it wrong, they should have invested more, they know they can't because their policy is to cut taxes and cut spending on essential things like health services. Supplementary. What is the waiting time for anger management? And so far as the Minister has responsibility. So. Uh, Mr Speaker, the, we have a health system that is uh, facing extraordinary pressures. And I was very pleased during the weekend to spend some time with about 220 frontline uh, health workers, right? anything from intensive care specialists to ED specialists to nurses to all sorts of people, leaders in our health system, who are seriously want to work with the government on finding the solutions. And the thing they were most disappointed about was when I told them that in order to host an event here, I had to invite every single MP to come along, and only two other MPs turned up, uh, my colleague Dr Aisha Verrill and my colleague uh, Liz Craig. Nobody from the opposition who have spent weeks talking about how much they care about the health system bothered to, to turn up to join 220 of our hardest working health leaders to talk about the solutions to the challenges that we've got. Uh, question number nine, Jenny Anderson. Tēnā koe e te māngai o te whare. My question is to the Minister of Police. What recent announcements has he made on investments to emergency services to keep the public safe? Uh, the Honourable Chris Hopkins. Mr Speaker, last week I announced that a new digital communications network for emergency service workers will roll out from next year, marking the most significant advance in New Zealand's public safety communications in decades. New Zealand's emergency services have done an incredible job in often very challenging circumstances. This new network will give them a modern network to replace a critical communication system that doesn't currently meet the needs of our emergency services in terms of data, security and resilience, the sorts of tools that they need to serve New Zealand. Supplementary, what services will benefit from these upgrades? Mr Speaker, initially the new systems will be used by police, Fire and Emergency New Zealand, St John's and Wellington Free Ambulance. New Zealand's emergency services are made up of approximately 35,000 staff and volunteers who attend over 5 million calls for help every year. They need to be able to respond at any time and in any part of New Zealand and for that they need accurate and timely information. What changes will these investments make? Mr Speaker, the new network will have two key components, a digital land mobile radio network which will allow emergency services to reliably communicate with each other and prioritised cellular services and roaming which will increase connectedness to mobile broadband for first responders, especially at times when mobile networks are congested or degraded. Why are these services necessary? 
Mr Speaker, emergency services are using and needing more real-time information as they're out and about doing their jobs. Better information for them means better outcomes for the public. We also know firsthand the significant challenges posed by earthquake and climate-related emergencies. This infrastructure investment will support our emergency services to work together more efficiently in what can be a very challenging environment. Uh, question number 10, the Honourable Mark Mitchell. Thank you, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Police. Does he agree with AM show host Ryan Bridges' comments about retail crime that there is a growing sense that nothing has been done about these things? The government isn't being hard enough on them, there aren't enough consequences, and they keep happening as they do, so people are taking matters into their own hands. And how many businesses have had security systems installed through the Small Retailer Crime Prevention Fund. Mr Speaker, while I sympathise with those business owners who are the subject of these crimes being committed, I don't agree with the assertion that nothing is being done. To the contrary, police have made hundreds of arrests and laid thousands of charges for offending at retail businesses in Auckland and the Waikato in recent months. As I mentioned earlier, of the 521 stores that have identified that have been identified as the victims of a ram raid, police have successfully contacted 209 businesses. Of these, 132 have had a formal assessment completed by police, 93 stores have been reviewed by a contractor, and 83 stores have had installations booked, underway, or partially or fully completed by external suppliers. How many of those 83 businesses that are booked, underway, or completed? have actually been completed. Uh, Mr Speaker, I don't have an update on the seven completed that was previously reported. I do understand that a number of businesses have had at least part of the work partially completed, but I don't have numbers for that. Does it concern him that four of the five alleged perpetrators of the crime we saw in Ellerslie yesterday were 18 or under, and if so, would tougher policies prevent youth feeling emboldened to terrorise the public like we saw yesterday? I must speaker and answer the first part of the question, absolutely yes. Does he agree that just 11% of youth retail offenders being well engaged in school has fuelled the sharp increase in ram raids and what is he doing about it? Uh, Mr Speaker, um, I do agree that there is a correlation. There's a question of which comes before the other. What we know is that these young people are coming from backgrounds where they're not just disengaged from education, but they have a whole lot of other things going on in their lives as well, including the fact that uh, analysis by the Social Wellbeing Agency has suggests that around 90% of them could be living in a household with someone who's involved in the correction system. If people believe that harsher penalties and, and more custodial sentences for these young people is going to break that cycle, I think they're wrong. Uh, question number 11, Ibrahim Omar. Thank you, uh, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Immigration and ask us, what recent announcements has he made regarding migrant families? Uh, the Honourable Michael Wood. Mr Speaker, last month I announced that we are reopening the parent visa category, which was closed in 2016. Further to this, I announced yesterday that Immigration New Zealand has resumed selections of, uh, of expressions of interest for parent category visas. The first round of selections was made yesterday and EOIs will continue to be selected on a quarterly basis and date order, with the oldest EOIs selected first. Up to 2,000 visas per year will be granted from existing expressions of interest on hand, and this has been warmly welcomed within New Zealand's migrant communities. Supplementary. How had the government reduced the barriers accessing the parent category visa? Mr Speaker, not only have we resumed selections of parent category EOIs, but we've also taken the chance to improve the scheme. This includes lowering the income threshold for sponsors and an addi additional 500 visas to be granted under a new ballot system from August of 2023, meaning that from that point up to 2,500 parent category visas per year will be granted in total. Supplementary. Why is reopening this visa so important for migrant families? Uh, Mr Speaker, since coming into this portfolio in the middle of the year, one of the most frequently uh, um, heard issues that I have heard from our migrant community uh, has been their concern about this category having been closed in 2016 and a lack of, of a pathway uh, for their parents to be able to join them here in New Zealand. 
I'm confident that the resumption of EOI selections and the improvements that we've made to the parent category visa will see New Zealand become an even more attractive destination for high-skilled migrants looking to resettle here long-term, knowing that they can do so with their families. Supplementary. How does this complement the other changes made by the government to attract skilled migrants? Uh, Mr Speaker, under our settings across the skilled migrant category, the Green List and Resident Visa 2021, which has now provided residents to over 110,000 people, our government is providing more and more streamlined ways for skilled migrants to settle in New Zealand than has ever been the case before. Resuming the parent category selection also continues my focus on ensuring that we treat our migrants in New Zealand with respect and enable them to settle well in our country where they contribute so much. Uh, question number 12, Simon Watts. Thank you very much, Mr Speaker. My question is to the Minister of Local Government. How many, if any, parks and reserves that link to the stormwater network will be transferred to the proposed water service entities as part of the government's three waters reform and what consultation, if any, was undertaken about the potential for those assets to be transferred? Uh, the Honourable Nanaya Mahuta. Mr Speaker, to the first part of the question, the public can be assured that where the primary purpose of land is a park, it will remain a park and it will remain in council ownership. For the purposes of the water reform and the water services entity bill, parts of the storm water network which will not transfer include rural land drainage schemes, road and rail corridors, regional council river and flood management functions and private stormwater network infrastructure. Uh, point of order, the Honourable Michael Woodhouse. Mr Speaker, the first part of that question was what will be transferred and the Minister only addressed what would not. Now there is an obligation to answer that and it hasn't been met. Um, Dr Duncan Webb, speaking well, the, to point of order. The answer uh, was that parts will not be transferred and it was clearly addressed. Yeah, the, the question is how many, and the question is how many, and from my um, hearing of the answer, the minister is saying none. Is, is that what? Uh, is, I'll ask the minister to confirm that that was the. Um, to be, to be clear, uh, Mr. Speaker, and to the member asking the question, to the first part of the question. The public can be assured that where the primary purpose of land is as a park, it will remain a park and will remain in council ownership. It definitely addresses the question. Have you, further, have you got a supplementary? Supplementary. If no parks are being transferred, why, why during select committee did officials specifically identify Waitangi Park in Wellington as an asset that could be transferred? Mr Speaker, I'm glad the member has raised the issue of Waitangi Park. Waitangi Park is an excellent example of the principles of Te Mano Te Wai in action. Its environmentally sustainable design implements water-sensitive urban design for harvesting and treating stormwater while also delivering recreational benefits to the people of Wellington. Under the water reforms and the guiding principles of Te Mano Te Wai, I know that many more communities will see projects like this occur over the country. As referred to in, my primary in, my, in, in your primary question, the answer in relation to Waitangi Park is that the mechanism, well, let me answer. The mechanism for actual transfer of the land and other assets, should the council agree, will be in the next Water Services Entity Bill, and I'm pleased that councils are already engaging on such matters. It'll still be a part, that's right. Will she, supplementary, will she categorically rule out the transfer of any local parks or reserves to one of the government's mega entities, and if not, why not? 
Mr Speaker, councils have the ability to work with water establishment entities to decide which assets and land will transfer and as a result the public will be notified. This will be done with councils, not against them. And it's important to ensure that if the primary purpose for the use of land is as a park, it will remain a park and the, and the public can still utilise that park. Supplementary. If no public parks are being transferred, why has the Water Services Entity Bill's definition of stormwater assets been expanded to now explicitly include, and I quote, green stormwater infrastructure and overland flow plaths, close quote. Mr Speaker, that definition continues to improve clarity around the primary purpose of land use. That's why, let me be very clear, that's why it's very important for the, for the House and members of the public to understand that those, those land uses, albeit maybe for stormwater purposes, such as rural land drainage schemes, road and rail corridors, regional council river and flood management functions and private stormwater network infrastructure, they will not transfer. And if the primary purpose of land is uh, is um, for a park, it will remain a park. It will only be because councils, only be because councils want that land to transfer, that that transfer will take place. Under no other circumstance will that happen. Supplementary. Mm -hmm. oh, that's oh, sorry. Left. sorry. Um, that concludes oral questions.